We're going to take a short break from the book of Genesis, and there are several reasons for that. We've been in the book of Genesis, we've come to the end of chapter 16, and uh, there are several things coming up in the next month or so that are going to make that study a little bit choppy. For one thing, I have something like four different trips planned in the next month and a half. Uh, on top of that, I have a project for seminary that I'm working on that, Lord willing, is going to become a sermon series. I say, Lord willing, it's an assignment that I hope will be beneficial to you. And I hope in the, in the next several weeks to begin bringing that to you and sharing with you what the Lord's been teaching me. On top of that, next month we have Easter coming up, which will be a special message and a special uh, emphasis that day. And all of that to say that over the next couple of months, if we were to continue on through Genesis, it would be very choppy. And we have come to sort of a good stopping point. So we're going to leave Genesis for a little while, where we left off at the end of chapter 16. And then when we return to it soon, we will pick up in chapter 17 with God's confirmation of the Abrahamic covenant. I hope that's not too confusing. I appreciate your patience and understanding. But with that in mind, I invite you now to take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. My intention today, building on what I presented to you last Sunday, uh, is as we looked at our call to love and serve one another in Christ, my intention today is to look at the first portion of what's called the Upper Room Discourse, the last night before Jesus was crucified. And I want, to, I want us to look at the first passage uh, there, beginning in chapter 13. And then, Lord willing, next week and the week after, we'll spend two weeks looking at what comes right after that Upper Room Discourse in the High Priestly Prayer of the Lord Jesus. Now, I understand that as we do that, we're jumping into the middle of a context. So before we read the text, let me give you, if I can, a quick summary or a quick overview of what's going on as we jump into John 13. John chapters 13 through 16 are called the Upper Room Discourse. They are a record of the last conversation Jesus had with his disciples before he was arrested. This means that uh, in just a few short hours, he will be crucified. Jesus' public ministry by this point is over. It ended at the end of chapter 12. <coughs> his public ministry is over, and his focus now is on his private teaching with his disciples in these few hours that he has left with them. And in these chapters... Jesus gives practical instruction to his 12 disciples about what being disciples really looks like. What is the attitude that they ought to have? What is their mindset? Where are they to be looking? What, what is their hope supposed to be? And he's trying to prepare them for what it's going to be like for them to be disciples after he is gone. These chapters occur at dinner time. And this is one big 
intense dinnertime conversation with them. This is a sober and precious time for Jesus with his disciples. He is preparing them for his death and burial and resurrection, something that they haven't even grasped is going to happen yet in their mind. He is preparing them for the mission that he is calling them to after he is gone and for their leadership of the church that will soon be established. In our text for today, John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17, Jesus begins that dinnertime conversation with a shocking and vivid demonstration of the true character of his kingdom. The true character of his kingdom. A major theme that Jesus is going to focus on throughout this conversation with his disciples that, month, that, that night is to comfort them by emphasizing his love for his own people. As his time on earth comes to a close, and as his violent death draws near, Jesus reassures and comforts his disciples with the truth of his unending love for them. Powerful last words, if ever there were. This text is a vivid illustration and demonstration of what that love looks like and how it is to play itself out in the lives of God's people. This is a powerful lesson for the disciples, for sure. But it is a powerful lesson for all disciples of Christ throughout all generations. So let's read this passage together. John 13, verses 1 through 17. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a, ba into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus said to him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. 
For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. We live in a world that is obsessed with love. Right? Whatever you think that looks like, whatever the world thinks that looks like, and wherever you might hear it in different ways, it is a world obsessed with love. But unfortunately, though, we also live in a world that, for the most part, does not understand what true love is. Yes, there are glimpses of true love on display from time to time. Think of uh, cases where you've seen a, a couple that's been married for an unusually long time, or think of those times when you might hear news stories about a good Samaritan. <clears throat> but then we see other aspects of our culture, like the movies and the music that are popular. And we hear how people describe the basis of their romantic relationships and what they're looking for in a spouse or in a lover. While it is clear that the level of affection and emotion or lust might be high, it is also clear that the idea of true love showing forth in humility and self-sacrifice on a daily basis sometimes with no return, is a foreign and unwelcome concept in our society. But then we look at Jesus. Then we look at Jesus. Throughout his earthly life and his ministry, Jesus continually challenged conventional worldly wisdom. He said, for instance, in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And then he goes on to teach, I say to you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And then we look throughout the New Testament and we see a concept of love that stands in stark contrast to the world's idea. Galatians 5.13 says, You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Likewise, 1 Corinthians 10.24 tells us, Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And again, Philippians 2, 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then perhaps the height of the Bible's beautiful teaching on love comes in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, 
believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Scripture clearly teaches that true and godly love is humble, self-sacrificial, and other-focused. But far greater than any description of godly love is the demonstration of it in the life and death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said in John 15, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And he demonstrated that love, that very truth, by laying down his own life for his sheep. That is the ultimate act of love. In fact, 1 John 3.16 tells us, By this we know love. He laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. See, the reality is, what Jesus demonstrated is not just what he did, but who he is. And that is who we are called to be. And that is what we are called to do. In the passage before us, we find a vivid demonstration of Jesus' own love and humility as he washes the feet of his disciples. It certainly is a fitting section or a fitting scene in a section that is focused on the, the life and the nature of the kingdom of God and what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. And so as we work through this passage it is a beautiful and sobering picture of what it means to follow Christ. What I want us to do is to break it up into three sections. I want us to consider the humility that Christ displays, and then I want us to consider the lesson that Christ teaches. And then finally, I want us to consider the response that Christ expects. The outline I'm following this morning is not original with me. I've come across it and have been blessed by it, and I want to share it with you. But I want us to consider these things as we look at Christ in this spectacular display of humility. So let's look first of all at the humility Christ displays. The humility Christ displays. We see that in verses 1 through 5. In verse 1, we read, Now before the feast of the Passover, that tells us when this is going on and what the circumstances are. It sets the stage for the whole conversation in chapters 13 through 16. These disciples are with Jesus in the upper room during the Passover feast. And then John goes on and writes this. When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. I want us to understand that right here at the outset. Jesus knew exactly what was going on. He knew he was about to, to be arrested. He knew he was going to be crucified. He knew his disciples were going to scatter. He knew Judas was in the room, and he knew what he was going to do. His hour had come. His death was imminent, and Jesus knew it. But not only did he know it, Scripture makes abundantly clear he was in charge See, Jesus was not a victim. 
Jesus was not crucified because he tried a little too hard or shook a tree a little too hard and then got himself in trouble and the world responded. Jesus, when he went to the cross, went on his own terms and he did it according to his predetermined plan. Everything was under his control. The disciples couldn't see it at the moment. But Jesus knew exactly what was going on. Nothing surprised him. Everything happened right according to plan. And John reinforces that truth in verse 3 when he says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and knowing that he had come from God and that he was going back to God. So this tells us not only did Jesus know what was going on, and not only was he in control of what was going on, but it tells us who he is. He's not just a mere man. He is God in human flesh. We see here his divine origin. We see his divine authority. We see his divine destination. He is going to complete his mission. And he is going to return to the Father. He came for this purpose. What purpose? What was his mission? We've heard about it as we looked at the catechism. That as the true God-man, he would live a perfect life in our place and die a sinner's death in our place so that we who are sinners can be made righteous in him and have peace with God. That is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That was his purpose, and he accomplished it just as it was supposed to be. Now, John finishes verse 1 by saying that because Jesus knew his time to die had come, he says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That phrase, to the end, has the idea of perfection or completion. It means that he loved them to the fullest measure possible. Son song, what more can he say than to you he has said? Allow me to translate that for our purposes today. What more could he give than to you he has given? Or as we also like to sing, there is no more for heaven now to give. While scripture makes clear that God loves the whole world in a general way, think John 3.16. It also makes clear that the Lord Jesus has a special kind of love for his own people. It is an eternal and redeeming kind of love. And his own death in the place of his people is the ultimate expression of the fullness of that love that he has for his people. The disciples are going to witness that firsthand in a matter of hours. But Jesus still has something to say to them about the kingdom and about what that love looks like and how it is to manifest itself in the lives of his people. And so he's going to teach them vividly. But it's interesting that before going on to that, in verse 2, John adds another curious detail. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, we know Judas, right? We know Judas the betrayer. The world knows Judas the betrayer. 
Have you ever met any Judases? I mean, by name. But why does he include that comment here? It doesn't seem to fit, does it? In fact, it seems to be quite opposite of what we're about to see in Jesus' actions. I think that's the point. It is opposite. This little narrative comment hangs a dark and sinister backdrop to this passage that highlights and brings out the love of Christ that is manifested in what Jesus does here. What Satan does through Judas is the epitome of darkness and hate. And with that as the backdrop, especially with Judas in the room at that moment, the love and humility of our Savior shines forth in greater brightness. So, with all of that setting the stage for the scene, we come to verses 4 and 5. And we read that Jesus rose from supper, and he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. I don't know if we, in our Western culture, can fully grasp the shocking nature of what Jesus does in that moment. Washing someone's feet was the lowliest of tasks in that culture. I can't think of something that compares to it in our culture. You say cleaning toilets. No, it's below that. Cleaning somebody's clogged drain. I think it's even below that. How do I know that? Because only servants did that. And at that, only Gentile servants did that. Jewish servants didn't even do this. This was the lowest of the low. No one of any importance in that society would ever stoop to doing such a thing. And it wasn't just the act of washing feet that was so shocking here. Verse 4 describes Jesus as even dressing like a servant, taking off a garment and wrapping a towel around his waist. I don't mean to sound inappropriate, but he was virtually naked in front of these men. It's a humiliating position. On his knees, washing their feet, humiliated. It was an awkward situation. It was embarrassing on everyone's part as they witnessed this stunning act of humility. While we understand that it is a significant act of Humility. It may not be easy for us truly to grasp it as it really is. So I, I want us to meditate on this from three different perspectives, from three angles. First, what we see here is the Creator washing the feet of the creation. The Creator washing the feet of His creation. John established at the very beginning of this gospel that Jesus is God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word, that is the Son, that is the revelation of God, is God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. This is Jesus Christ. 
the creator of heaven and earth. And what we see here in John 13 is not what we would expect from the creator and sustainer of the earth, is it? But it fits perfectly with what Scripture just said about him. See, back in the Old Testament, Isaiah presents Jesus, presents this Messiah as a servant who will suffer, who is a man of sorrows and who is well acquainted with grief. The Apostle Paul expounds on that in Philippians 2 when he says that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As lowly a place as Jesus took in that moment before the feet of the disciples, he was about to descend lower. What humility. What condescension. This doesn't mean that he stopped being God, but it means that as God, this is how far his love for his people reaches. It's a powerful picture. The creator stooping to wash the feet of his own creation. The second perspective I want us to see is the teacher washing the feet of his students. And again, our Western culture doesn't help us with understanding that, but in that culture, teachers didn't do this. There was a rigid, reverent divide between teacher and student. Now think of what you already know about these 12 disciples. As far as these guys have come in their understanding of Jesus as the Messiah, they still don't have an accurate picture of who he is and what he came to do. They're still struggling with it, and they're going to struggle with it until they see him risen from the dead. And to make matters worse, if you look at the parallel accounts of this in, in Luke, you read that at this supper, prior to what Jesus does in washing the disciples' feet, the disciples are having an intense conversation. And do you know what it's about? Can you guess what it's about? It's about which among them is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. They don't understand. It was a common argument among the disciples. And because they were fixed on that, they were unable to see the true nature of Christ right in front of them. They were preoccupied with prominence. They were most concerned about jockeying for position in the kingdom and getting their own way. And because of their selfishness, they missed what Jesus had taught them about who he is, what he came to do, and what life as his children is really all about. They were not ready to serve one another. And truly, they were not ready to show the character of Christ to the world around them. Oh, they would be, but in this moment, they're not. So while Jesus' disciples are preoccupied with their own prominence, Jesus gives them a stunning illustration of the humble service and of the true love that marks his character and his kingdom. 
The creator bends down to wash the feet of his creation. The teacher stoops to wash the feet of the student. This is a powerful lesson that every follower of Jesus needs to hear. See, brothers and sisters, if we are preoccupied with our own dignity, if we are preoccupied only with what we think Christianity has to offer us, if we are, uh, are, are consumed with fulfilling our own selfish ambitions and desires or getting our own way, then we are out of sync with the teaching and example of the Lord Jesus himself. This is why the modern-day consumer mentality in churches is so dangerous. And this is why the one who merely attends church to enjoy a sermon is so deceived. The consumer comes to church looking for what he or she will get from it. But the true disciple comes to church looking not just to see Christ, but to learn of him and to follow his example and to look for opportunities to serve wherever there is a need. And the, and the focus of serving, by the way, is on the people right in front of us, where they are. This is where we engage. This is where we have opportunities to show grace. This is where we show what we really believe. So here's a stunning picture of humility and selfless service on the part of Jesus Christ. The creator washing the feet of his creation. The teacher washing the feet of his followers. It's all backwards, isn't it? At least in worldly terms. Here's a third perspective. The Lord washing the feet of his betrayers. Judas will soon leave. And he will betray Jesus. But for now, you need to understand, yes, he's in the room. And yes, Jesus washed his feet, knowing full well what Judas was about to do. Can you think of a greater condescension? Can you think of a greater display of love and humility? You see, Jesus taught us to love our enemies and to do good to those who would do us harm. That's not just something he said. It is something he exemplified. It is something he modeled in his own life. And by the way, that's exactly what he did on the cross. Same thing for us. For while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He went lower than washing our feet. He died for us. And he didn't, he went lower than a typical death. He died the death of a cross, which was the most humiliating they could do at that time. We won't spend any more time on that point, but I just want us to think about this. Let this truth wash over you. This will change your life if you understand it. If it means something to you. There is great importance. There is great significance in the stunning image of Jesus stooping to wash the feet of these men. It shows us what his character is like. It shows us what he came to do. It shows us how we ought to live. And that brings us to 
consider, secondly, not just the humility that Christ displays, but the lesson that Christ teaches. The lesson that Christ teaches. We find this in verses 6 through 11. Now, verses 6 through 11 are, in a sense, a, a secondary lesson. He'll give the conclusion of the matter in the next portion. Here, it's a lesson in response to what Peter says to him. But Peter's response here opens the way for an important lesson. And again, if we're going to understand what Peter's concern is here, we need to understand something of the culture of that day regarding washing feet. Most people in that day, if they wore shoes, wore sandals. They didn't have paved roads. At best, they had stones. The streets were typically very dirty and dusty. And you know what happens when dust gets on sweaty feet, right? Or sand. And by the way, it wasn't often just dirt that ran through the streets that some of these people from time to time walked in. Their feet would get nasty. And no matter how clean you were at the start of the day, your feet would be filthy. And so as a result, it was common when entering into somebody's house, especially anybody of any sort of means, that a servant would wash their feet. Somehow it was made possible for their feet to be clean. It was an act of hospitality on the part of the host. But it was a task that was only for the servants to do. But in this scene, we find that there was no servant to wash anyone's feet. So instead of doing it themselves, the disciples all came to the table with dirty feet, which was also culturally offensive. But they would have rather have done that than for anybody to break the mold and step out and stoop to wash anyone else's feet. Now, I'm sure they would have been happy to wash Jesus' feet if he had asked. But I know they weren't willing to wash anyone else's feet. After all, remember that they're consumed with figuring out who's the greatest among them. That's a sure bet. Losing that argument if you stoop to wash someone's feet. No one's ready to give that up yet. None of them wanted to be the first to flinch. So in the absence of a servant, and in the absence of any of these disciples willing to do it themselves, Jesus gets up to do it. And I wonder if you can imagine what was going through their minds at that point. What would be going through your mind? You'd feel a little rebuked, wouldn't you? I think we would. Now, as we look at these verses, with that in mind, let's consider now the symbolism that Peter missed. In verse 6, he came, as, as Jesus comes to Simon Peter, he says to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? That's an emphatic statement. Do you wash my feet? The implication is, Lord, it's I who should be washing your feet. And we're sitting here thinking, well, then why didn't you? And I think that's what Jesus is revealing to him. Peter's always the first one to speak up, isn't he? You know he's not the only one thinking this. He's the first one, always, to step up and defend Christ's honor. Lord, you shall never die. Lord, I will never betray you. Peter is all in, at least as far as he can tell. He's not going to allow Jesus to do anything that is unfitting for a king. Lord, I should be washing your feet. 
But then in verse 7, Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. What Jesus is doing here is intentional. He knows they don't understand what he's doing in this moment, but he knows they will eventually. He is planting a seed of knowledge that will soon sprout into understanding. You see, Peter, and I think the rest of the disciples with him at this moment, can only see the physical side of what Jesus is doing. They're blind to the spiritual implications of it. So in verse 8, Peter responds, You shall never wash my feet. That's a double negative, which in Greek is different than it is in English. In Greek, it means absolutely a thousand times, may it never be, you are never, ever, ever going to do this. It's an outright, stark, staunch refusal. Again, Peter, Mr. Absolute, simply unable to accept that his master would wash his feet. And while Peter's modesty and desire to protect Jesus from humiliation might appear praiseworthy, he is once again finding himself working at cross purposes with the Savior. And he ends up disrespecting him. Disciples didn't tell their teacher no. And Jesus answers in verse 8, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And here's where the spiritual significance begins to come into focus. Washing is in Scripture a, often a metaphor for spiritual cleansing. Jesus is speaking of their relationship to him. He is speaking of their salvation. And they need to understand the nature of his work and the nature of his mission and the nature of salvation. You see, he is not the conquering king that they expected. He is not going to overthrow the Roman government in that moment. He is not going to establish an earthly kingdom right then and there. Instead, he is the selfless sacrifice who would give his life to save his people from their sin. If they would receive the salvation that he came to give, if they would have a part in his kingdom, they need to accept the reality of his humiliation and the implications of it for their own lives. And so what Jesus is doing here is correcting their thinking. Peter begins to understand this, at least in part, and so he abruptly responds in verse 9, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. All right, Lord, again, I'm all in. You want to wash? Wash. He's making some progress, but it still hasn't clicked yet. It's still fixated on the physical. Again, he's not seeing the whole picture. So in verse 10, Jesus responds to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. What's he talking about there? His whole point is not about physical washing, but about the spiritual cleansing that Jesus provides by his shed blood and atoning death on the cross. He is illustrating the nature of both salvation and sanctification. Or spiritual growth. The one who has bathed that he talks about is the one who has already been saved, the one who has already been brought into the kingdom, who has already been cleansed by faith through the grace of God in Christ Jesus. That is a one-time cleansing for salvation. That cleansing has already been applied to those who believe. 
So when we come to Christ in saving faith, we are completely and forever clean. That's the washing of the whole body that Jesus talks about. And it happens only once. We do not need to be re-saved every day. But we do sin, don't we? Even still, that is the cleansing that Jesus is illustrating with the washing of the feet. As we walk through this world, we still wrestle with the effects of sin. We need daily cleansing, not for salvation, but for spiritual growth, for sanctification. Continual cleansing, continual purifying for the growth in the knowledge and the character of Christ. So at the cross, Jesus both saves his people from their sins and he gives a life of continual spiritual cleansing and growth in Christ's likeness. Jesus makes a sobering statement at the end of verse 10 and on through verse 11. And you are clean. So he's telling Peter, you're already clean. But not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. Once again, John refers to Judas. Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him. He knows that even as he washes his feet, that Judas is only going through the motions. And you know, there are some who do go through the motions of following Christ, who are not truly his people. Perhaps there are some among us today, right here, who are merely going through the motions of following Christ without the true reality in your hearts. It is possible in our presence to fake it, to look good to those around you and still be lost. But my friend, God knows your heart. You cannot fool him. And that brings us to consider the question that we must all ask as we examine our own hearts. Am I clean? Are you clean? You know, the protest of Peter at the Lord washing his feet is not all that surprising, is it? It's a display of pride. The same kind of pride that most unbelieving people demonstrate today. It is the pride of those who are so confident that they can find their way on their own. That they can in some way save themselves or earn a standing before God. And so they resist any suggestion that they have a need of divine cleansing. Or that only Jesus can provide it. This is the cutoff point or the shutdown point for most people, isn't it? They like the idea of Jesus judging the sin of other people. They like the purity and the moral example that Jesus set. But when you tell them that his mission was to save people from their sin, and that if they want any part of the salvation he offers, they must repent. You must repent of your own sin and seek forgiveness in him alone. No longer interested. One preacher said it this way. 
people today would rather do something for God and thereby be accepted than acknowledge their helpless and hopeless condition unless God does something for them. Being clean before God is not a matter of making something of ourselves or doing enough to earn a place in heaven. Being clean before God is a matter of bowing low and accepting the free gift of salvation that Jesus provided at the cross as he humbly and self-sacrificially endured the humiliation and died on the cross, bearing the judgment of God on sin in our place. That is a confession and attitude that dominates the heart of all who truly believe in Christ throughout their lives. And so Jesus, even by this conversation, brings his people to a crucial point of consideration. How do I know if I'm clean? Well, first of all, it begins by accepting the free gift that Jesus Christ has offered in his humility. The gift of salvation through his own death and burial and resurrection. But then practically, how does it show up in our lives? That brings us to the next point. The response that Christ expects in verses 12 through 17. The response Christ expects. Verse 12 says, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? He had already acknowledged in verse 7 that they don't understand, but now he's, he's transitioning into a, a lesson based on what he has just done. In light of everything we have seen to this point, what he is about to say is the only reasonable course of action. Now, if you are truly clean in Christ... This is how it affects how you live. It says in verses 13 through 16, you call me teacher and Lord. Great. You've got the doctrine up here. You've got it. You're right, because that's what I am. But consider this. If I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Quit thinking about what you want to accomplish. Quit thinking about getting your own way at the table and be the first to grab the towel. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. For a group of men who are constantly arguing over who is the greatest among them and cutting each other down in their climb to the top, this is a crucial lesson, lesson about the nature of life as followers of Christ. That the Son of God and Lord of all the universe, whom they recognized as such, was willing to stoop to this place, and they ought to do the same. And so ought we. Now, this isn't the introduction of a third ordinance into the church, foot washing like some have thought. But it is the establishment of an example and mindset for God's people to follow. 
It is a call to serve one another. As the Lord Jesus Christ has served us, if we would be like Christ, if we really remember what he has saved us from, then we must imitate his heart of loving, humble, self-sacrificial service toward one another. Let's bring this to a close. This passage highlights two crucial needs for each one of us. First of all, the need for cleansing. And second of all, the need for Christ-like humility and service. And the flow of this passage makes clear that the first one comes first and the second one comes next. Any service we do is not the cause of our cleansing, but the result of it. In fact, there is no true Christ-like serving or humility apart from the cleansing that Jesus provides. So John's purpose in writing the Gospel of John is that we would see Jesus for who he truly is, as the Son of God, who is the Lord of all and the Savior of his people. And his goal is that by seeing him, we would find salvation and eternal life in him. So this passage shows us the loving and humble character of Christ and of those who are in his kingdom. And it calls us to accept that gracious gift of salvation and to embrace that humble call of service to one another. Jesus says in verse 17, If or since you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Friends, have you been cleansed today by Christ? Have you come to a point of saving faith, of the knowledge of your sin and of the great grace that God has extended to you, that if you would believe in him, you would be saved and have eternal life? Have you come to that point of cleansing? If not, I urge you today, come. Jesus is a willing and ready Savior. And there you will find life. And if you have come, my question is this. How far are you willing to go to serve one another? At what point does your pride and selfish ambition keep you from humbly loving and serving your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you at odds with a brother or a sister in Christ? If we can't get along with one another, then we have a problem with pride. And no doubt, my friends, the problem lies in you. And when we have that problem, we are sending a false message of Christ to the world. If we are truly in Christ, then there is no room for self-exaltation, bickering, strife, or putting one another down. We are called to submit to the work and to the teaching of our Savior, to follow his example in holy and humble and Christ-like selfless living, to go out of our way looking for ways to serve one another. And I'll tell you what, when you do that, your love will grow. And whatever hang-ups you have with one another won't live very long. Because you'll realize there is something much greater and more important that we are about. Nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Have this mind among yourselves that is yours in Christ Jesus.